Today is Tuesday, May 28th. This is Perspective from Politics NC. My name is Kirk Kovac. I'm here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Thomas, you with us? I'm with us. Okay. Well, we, we missed last week, and this week is a bit of a holiday week, and it's a short week, so we're going to start on Tuesday today. And uh, I think that the hottest topic I've seen, and you referenced it earlier, is this Tom Tillis primary situation. So uh, as it stands now, uh, Garland Tucker is in the race. And then I think last week it was Club for Growth put out a poll um, that they did on behalf of uh, Mark Walker, which said that he would do very well against Tom Tillis, you know, assuming everybody got information about him. So um, just a couple thoughts about the poll. What, what, what are your takeaways with this Club for Growth um, poll and the idea of a Mark Walker running? And specifically, one of the points in the poll was that only 17% of Republicans said they would vote for Tom Tillis, regardless of who ran against him. Is that is that a healthy number to be at at this point? No, that, that's not a healthy number. I, I will say I want to say one thing about polls. Forever, when you give voters a chance to vote for somebody new, they always say they want somebody new, and and so they a lot of times they they change their minds after they've gotten a bunch of communications. That said, the the number that really kind of shocked me in that poll was only 45% of Republicans approve of the job Tom Tillis is doing. That's, that's, that's very poor for an incumbent. And that should be really making Tillis nervous and, and the, um, uh, the Republican Senate committee nervous. And I, and I think it has. Get, judging from their response to, to the threats of the primary and their immediate attack on Garland Tucker, uh, you know, I think they're they're nervous. Well, could you, to the point of uh, how polls are all different, could you could you describe what you you take away from this poll in terms of what its purpose is? Is it for them to show that um, he's ripe for a primary, or is it to try to convince I, I, people? I think I think that's I think that's part of it. Is is they're trying to show that you know T- Tillis is vulnerable. They want somebody who's who they consider more loyal conservative. I mean, really what they were trying to do is push uh, Mark Walker into this race. And, you know, I mean, that, that's why his name was on it. They, they wanted, he had, he had been mentioned in the past a while ago as a potential primary opponent. And I think they were trying to give him ammunition to get in. And, and I'll be honest with you, when I looked at those numbers and, and really when I think about the environment we're in right now, I think Mark Walker would probably beat Tom Tillis in a primary. I mean, a lot can happen, and there'll be a ton of money coming in, but it now looks like there'll be a ton of money coming in on both sides. And for all the differences they want to claim about Garland Tucker and Tom Tillis, they're pulling from the same set of people. They're both, at heart, country club Republicans. I think Garland Tucker's got more... uh, he, he he's got a more a stronger set of values and he knows who he is Tillis is a little bit more malleable he'll kind of go with wherever the wind blows as long as he thinks it's good for his political fortunes but the one thing that, that neither one of them has is what Mark Walker brings to the table and that's solid deep support among the social conservatives in the party 
And in a primary, I got to think they make up close to half the voters. And if 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 Walker really galvanized them, and and Tucker and Tillis are drawing off of each other, with with only a thirty percent threshold, it really opens the door to Walker to to, to move through it. So, you know, he he'd be a strong candidate. That said, after I wrote a piece talking about it, I got a. a email from a from a friend of mine who's a kind of a, a national prognosticator and he said i really don't think mark walker will uh make a move here i think he's just enjoying the attention so you know who knows what walker's safe bet is to say stay in a gerrymandered district um if he's ambitious i think now is the time for him to try to move up yeah, well, do you think that um, what sort of ramifications a tough primary would have for Tillis? What what would that look like for him if he comes out of the primary? I think March fourth, and he does win, but he's beaten up by you know possibly two primary challengers. What sort of effects does that have on his campaign in the general? Do you think they push him to the right or take some untenable positions for a general primary or? You know, what, what, what are the downsides for Tillis besides just spending money? Um, because the primary's in March instead of May, that's a long time. He, he can probably heal most of the wounds he makes. The one thing he's never going to heal is that at the end of the day, a lot of people don't like him that much. I mean, this is a guy who really has been all over the map and, and, you know, to, to the point that he wrote an op-ed in the in the Washington Post trying to show how principled he was just to turn around and, and uh, you know, do exactly opposite of what he wrote um, and, uh, and to, to appease uh, Donald Trump. Everybody in the Republican Party is going to have to grab hold of Donald Trump and hope that he's got long coattails. Uh, it, could be a rough, it could be a rough year for Republicans. Um, but they don't have much of a choice. He's going to Trump is going to dominate that general election like no presidential candidate we've ever seen. And so, you know, I don't I don't know that his positions matter that much in that general election, other than how closely he's aligned with the president. Uh, well, I know there was you wrote about this the other day, but I think a pro LGBTQ group for Republicans endorsed him or said he was like a proponent. I don't really see how that plays well in a primary. If you're going to have very rigid conservatives running. Yeah. I, I I don't, I don't quite understand why they did that. I'll say this. I was, I was surprised that, uh, both he and I think it was Corey Gardner out of Colorado got that endorsement. And neither one of them, both of them just kind of said, yeah, we'll take whoever supports us. Um, you know, a few not not that long ago they would have tried to run away from that endorsement so we're seeing a little bit of growth in the republican party but yeah i mean if he's got a if um tillis has an opponent from the right a, a social conservative yeah a preacher i mean that yeah that could be that could be a real uh liability to him uh in, in a republican primary well, final thought for Tillis. Uh, the other day, there was an article about how he had skipped a Senate 
a Veterans Affairs Committee meeting to go to a fundraiser in Greensboro. I can't remember if I read that that was uh, something um, Pence was at or not the vice president. But just I feel like maybe if he were not under so much scrutiny uh, with this primary, that might not have been such a big story. People would have. Well, no, you're missing the context of the story here. In 2014, at the in the final weeks of the election, there was a debate, and it turned out that Kay Hagan did exactly the same thing. She skipped a, a, an Armed Services Committee hearing to go to a fundraiser, and they beat her up mercilessly over it. Said she wasn't doing her job. She was putting politics over over uh, her job as a senator. They whipped her terribly for weeks over that and the media went along with it so now you got tom tillis doing exactly the same thing and and the problem he's got is it's a hypocritical thing and he'll probably hear about that later you know that's not i mean that was the context of that thing how how can you i mean it really that whole now hagan and, and her campaign i don't think handled that situation that well but that really was the turning point in the 2014 election she was beating him pretty soundly, and then she, as I wrote back then, she lost that. She lost that. She won the debate while they were on stage, and she lost it afterwards when she told a reporter that she had missed something because she had been at a fundraiser instead of an armed services committee meeting. So that's that's the context of of uh, why people think that's such a liability for him. Right. And I, I did see a lot of people pointed that out um, after that article went up. I think WBTV uh, was the one I saw. Uh, moving away from the Republican side of, of that, there hasn't been much talk recently about the Democratic side. Um, again, it's still very early, but what's the time frame for when a top tier candidate would get in? At this point, if there's people waiting to jump into that Democratic primary, at what point do you think they need to pull the trigger on that? I think everybody's probably waiting until after the June 30th filing deadline because that's what's every, any reporter covering the race is going to look at the filing. And if you're getting in in middle of June, you've only got a couple of weeks to raise money. Now, it's probably not that big a deal, but um, it's not going to make that much of a difference whether you get in, you know, June fifteenth or July first, and um, I, so I, I suspect you're going to see some people get in. Now, you know, Eric Mansfield's sending out a lot of emails already, and he looks like he's a candidate. So, um, and I know that I saw something about uh, Erica Smith is is kind of relaunched her campaign. Um, Trevor Fuller's out recruiting staff. You know, it's there are people moving around, but nobody's really making a whole lot of impact right now. I, I think that the the DSCC and I think Emily's list think that there's a good chance they've got some uh, candidates that they feel like are are, are more top tier type folks. Um, so, you know, we, we'll see if that holds or not. If you do have someone that, say, like DSCC pushes to run, 
Um, and yeah. those other candidates that are currently in that have less of a chance to win probably than, you know, some of the other names that haven't been put out there yet. Is there going to be sort of a push from people within the party and like statewide, like would a Roy Cooper or Josh Stein weigh in on that primary? Or do you think that party no. people would sort of wait and just let it play out? I, th- I think for the most part, they'll let it play out. Um, I, I think, you know, if if you see somebody get in of the stature of, of, of Deb Ross or, or um, Janet Cowell, um, they're going to have all the money they need. They're, they're going to have a ton of resources. They're going to walk in there with pretty solid constituencies, pretty decent name recognition among a, a primary electorate. Though, though Cowell's been out for um, almost four years, so she, you know, the, unfortunately, voters have short memories. But um, you know, I think there's there's a they're not going to need a whole lot of help. But I certainly don't think you're going to see any of the the candidates get in. I mean, the top tier. I mean, the top party uh, candidates, yeah. Cooper, Stein. Lane Marshall, anybody like that, jump into a primary uh, fight just because it they they don't they don't want to get on the wrong side of a primary and have to run against somebody they worked against. Sure, that, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, to move away from the North Carolina Senate or the I'm sorry the the Senate race in North Carolina, rather, um, you wrote today about uh, an economic message for Democrats, and just since it's a fresh topic. Could you maybe talk through broadly what that message was and and the gist of that article you wrote? Yeah, I you know I have a I'm concerned that that the left flank of the Democratic Party is really doing a pr- better job of of uh, getting attention around their message than more mainstream centrist moderates, whatever you want to call them. And my, my biggest concern is that they're embracing this term socialism. Well, if you're my age, you know, that's got terrible connotations. I mean, we, we watched the, 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 the defining political factor of my life was in, in, the, in the late 80s, watching uh, the socialist experiment fail, you know, spectacularly. You know, watching the walls come down. You know, watching all these economies shift over from, uh, you know, failed socialist economies to market-based economies, and you really didn't see a whole lot of um, uh, even smaller, less developed countries embracing socialism after that. It just wasn't, um, you know, it, it was not seen as a positive. So when you see you hear people like Bernie Sanders and, and uh, AOCs, you know, embracing this term socialism. I think you're really uh, alienating a lot of the, the population. And um, I, I saw polls that not that long ago that said uh, one of the most negative factors that, that you could be labeled with is a socialist. So, you know, while we're not pushing back against that as a, as a party, I don't know. And um, the other thing is I think that a lot of this, the, what they call socialism is not real socialism. I think really what they're talking about is, 
uh, stronger safety nets and, and some broader social programs. But at the end of the day, Democrats have got to figure out how to reach more moderate voters in, in uh, rural and suburban districts or else you know, we're, we're going to have a hard time, and states, we're going to have a hard time in North Carolina taking back the legislature um, or holding Congress. Uh, you know, the, the, everybody wants to move the message to the left, but if we move the message to the left, all those seats we picked up in 2018 would go back to the Republicans. Those were not a bunch of liberals that got elected in those seats. Those were very moderate politicians, and they, they ran on pretty moderate economic messages that uh, were helped by an anti-Trump message. So, you know, we, we, we got to defend some tough seats, and we're not going to do it by, by tacking to the left. Um, you know, in North Carolina in particular, uh, we got to be able to pick up seats where uh, the Democratic brand is damaged um, pretty severely by, by um, people who perceive it as a, as a party that, that's only concerned about uh, um, uh, racial issues and, and uh, uh, kind of identity politics type issues. And, you know, and, and I see people that are embracing this thing says identity politics is where we are. You know, we can run up the score. If we want to drive out, if we want to drive out younger voters and people of color, um, we can do that. And that, you know, that helps us in, in places where we're already winning, but it doesn't do much to, to help us in places where we're not winning today. And I think we, we've got to be, as, we got to be more strategic in, in how we think about winning elections and winning districts. Uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent of driving out your base. I, I think we don't do a, a good enough job uh, pushing people to the polls. That said, I still think you have to win a certain part of the middle. And to do that, your, mod, your message needs to be more focused on economic uh, issues because at the end of the day, voters are self-interested. You got to tell them what you're going to do for me, not what you're going to do for their fellow, for your fellow man. And, uh, you know, a minimum, uh, raising a minimum wage, uh, you know, uh, reducing college debt, um, you know, strengthening uh, our, our social security, making sure that uh, everybody's got access to health care. And, uh, you know, th th these are messages that work and, and they can reach across, they can reach into people that we've lost as a party in the last few years that we need to bring back. So that's my, right. my thoughts. Right. Well, um, I think the last topic to hit um, just today, I believe the Senate kind of started to roll out their budget, some of the top items, um, some teacher raises, cost of living adjustments for state retirees, and they'll have to reconcile their budget with the House over the next few weeks. And I don't think anybody expects it to be a quick summer in the General Assembly. But uh, I think the most conspicuous absence in the budget so far is Medicaid expansion. And I wonder your thoughts on the prospects of that happening this year and maybe just more generally how this budget process might shake out as the House and Senate both don't have their supermajorities for the Republicans anymore this year. Um, 
it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. I, I, I've been uh, talking to a lot of folks. There was, a, there was optimism at the beginning of the legislative session that they could get some Medicaid expansion. I think there are a number of Republicans in there that would like to see Medicaid expanded, particularly Republicans in really rural areas where hospitals are um, at risk. But uh, there's a lot of pushback. I, I don't think Phil Berger's entertaining Medicaid expansion at all. Uh, I've been noticing the John Locke Foundation is pushing back on it extremely hard. They're just kind of they're, and, and Civitas, they're just keeping a drumbeat of, of anti-Medicaid expansion uh, propaganda and rhetoric going on social media and, and in blogs. So I, I think it has a hard time passing. I think the, the thing to watch is to see if, if Cooper uh, vetoes it, uh, but the budget, because it's not, what happens? Uh, and, and if they can c sustain that veto, do we ever go back to the negotiating table or do we end up finishing the legislative session without a budget and we just operate under the same uh, budget constraints of, that, that we're currently under? It, you know, it's, it's going to be, we're going to finish up this year with a, with quite a fight over the Medicaid expansion. And then, you know, you got to look at what are the political ramifications of that if, if either scenario happens. Um, you know, I got to think Medicaid expansion is pretty popular. And if they don't expand it, they go into the general election. They go into the 2020 election cycle with a liability hanging over their heads, that they're going to have to explain to their constituents, the Republicans. So, um, but I, I find it hard to see a path for getting it. Yes, and and that was my follow-up uh, as well. Uh, obviously, the Democrats who won, and most of them, if not, well, actually all of them that are there now want Medicaid expansion. And I, but I do think if it doesn't happen this year, they do have a pretty compelling message when they run for re-election to say, send us back and, and let's finish this job you sent us to start. And, you know, the Republicans aren't playing ball with us on this very important issue. So I guess it's a double-edged sword for the Republicans if they don't want it, but their constituents do. Right. And, you know, I mean, it, the, the big threat to Republicans in rural areas is these, are cl these hospitals are closing. And if they get that hung around their neck as being their fault for the hospitals closing because at least in part they didn't expand Medicaid, um, that's the type of thing that you could where you could see shifts in the way the electorate votes. Yeah, and well, the final thought on that too. It is in and out of the news, but uh, State Treasurer Falwell is still. I don't think they've finished his negotiations with the hospital about the um, state health insurance plan. I think right. And I know there are a lot of talk every now and then um, from some folks who, who think that some of the more establishment type Republicans might try and primary him or they had that committee that was going to try and do a study committee on it and kind of push it off past 2020, uh, even though he's he's really advocating the fact that the they don't have enough money to continue at the current clip. So, and that affects the rural hospitals as well, because if they're not making enough money uh, from, you know, the state's plan, then they might not be able to afford to even serve people. So it's a, again, a very difficult issue that Medicaid expansion might be able to address. 
But uh, I think that's about it for today. Obviously, there's going to be a lot more to come on the budget and probably for the rest of the year. They'll be in and out of session trying to resolve these issues. But uh, I think that's all for us, Thomas, if that's good with you. Yep, that sounds good to me. Well, we will be back next week, I believe. And if you're listening and enjoying this, please take a second, subscribe to us, follow us, and visit the website, politicsnc.com, where we talk about this and more every day of the week if we can help it. And uh, I think that's all. Thank you. Thank you.